0: Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and on today's episode, we're joined by Merit3D founder and CEO, Spencer Lovelace. Merit3D is a 3D printing service bureau that was founded in 2020 in response to Spencer's frustrations with injection molding technology. Through Dustless Technologies, a family business, Spencer and his team had been using injection moulding to manufacture dust collection and vacuum systems. But the inflexibility of the technology led Spencer to setting up an AM service bureau that would enable the production and continuous improvement of a range of applications. Earlier this year, Merit3D announced an order for one million epoxy hanger products, which will undergo a series of design enhancements as production ramps up. During this episode, Spencer explains how his team will be able to deliver 1 million parts of AM, while also discussing how the company has positioned itself to take on such a challenge in just three years. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com, where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Spencer, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. How's it going?
1: It's going well. Thanks, Sammy. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, thank you. So I thought we could uh, start in the year 2020, which um, I believe is the year that Merit 3D was founded. And for context, prior to that, you were you were running a company called Dustless Technologies. Um, so can you tell us about, I guess, the work you were doing at Dustless, and then the story of how Merit 3D came to be three years ago?
1: absolutely and and the two companies go hand in hand because um well, dustless was started in the 1980s by my my mom and dad
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they my dad invented a vacuum for taking ashes out of wood stoves. So that was that was in the 80s and the 90s that it evolved to wet dry vacuums and and my mom and dad really put themselves out on a limb, what I consider a limb because they invested, about $750,000 of loaned money to buy their first injection mold for a wet dry vacuum. Uh, that was in the 90s. And we're still using that vacuum today because who has a million to, in today's money, maybe $2 million to invest in injection molding tooling. Yeah, And that really got to where we are with the vacuum industry with Dustless. Well, fast forward many years in my My dad passed away in an airplane accident, my mom remarried and she retired. And it was kind of up to me to run the company. And I said, how, how am I going to build this company? I, I don't like almost hate injection molding because every time a customer would say, can you change this vacuum and can you add a handle on top? Or can you make this part bigger? The answer is always no, even if their idea was great and it made sense many times when you cut steel there's very little changes of any that you can make to your mold and so as in uh, 2020 as i took the realms it was how are we going to make this better and we looked to 3d printing and said can we 3d print it if we can 3d print it then we can we can be very agile in our production we don't have to invest in molds you're investing in a 3d printer which you can change your design whenever and so we really went on a journey to be able to find the best way that we could add it to manufacturer a part. And we had three requirements. The part had to be the same quality as injection molding, surface finish, uh, the same costs, really close to injection molding, as close as we could get it. And then the same scalability. We have customers in hardware stores, Home Depot, and Lowe's, and Sherwin-Williams, and all these chains. And as soon as they want 2,000 pieces, we can't wait months for these parts like traditional additive or 3D printing has been and so we uh we found some methods we actually work a lot with photocentric out of the UK mm-hmm. uh, they have the same vision for additive manufacturing that we have and we, we released one of our first products it was a a shroud for a jackhammer for dustless and then we uh we started talking to other manufacturers and they're like hey you're You're mass producing stuff for dustless can you mass produce things for us as well and we're like we don't see why we can't and so at the same time that we launched the very first part that was 3d printed to be on a retail shelf we also worked with the company to make uh phone cases Mm -hmm. and we launched phone cases in shills cabela's bass pro like these major hardware major stores across the country and then we we really launched Merit 3D to be that source for other manufacturers to mass produce their parts in a big volume, and so it's been a it's been a fun journey. Uh, it just started a couple of years ago, but man, there's so many different opportunities and so different different avenues and visit, or, uh, just different uh, markets, whether it's phone cases or construction parts medical and aerospace are kind of the general ones that people say yes additive works
0: mm-hmm.
1: but that's a uh, that's the markets that we're in and that's the direction that we want to go
0: yeah uh, i want to come on to the the phone case application in a little bit but you mentioned there that obviously as you as you were bringing on 3d printing and you were looking to to mass produce products you were you're looking for the same quality same cost same scalability as injection molding um how much of a challenge did that feel for for you and your team like had you had you had much experience working with 3d printing prior to incorporating merit 3d
1: yeah we had uh we've had a printer since 2006. okay so it's been for us it's been quite a few years that we've been printing and as we went to all these major corporations um uh, you know the 3d printing giants of the world we said hey we, we wanted mass-produced things. We want these three things, cost, quality, scalability. They said, you're great, but you're probably about 15 years ahead of your time. And I said, I don't have 15 years to try to make this work. Like, we got to figure this out very, very quickly. And they're like, well, the materials aren't there yet. The costs aren't there yet. And 3D printing is still slow. Mm-hmm. And so... So my take on it was, well, I'm either going to spend a million dollars on a printer that's going to print very, very quickly, or I'm going to spend a million dollars on hundreds of printers and just create a print farm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the we ended up kind of meeting in the middle and found some machines that were that middle ground but could print fast, and it's worked really well. Um, we've constantly we've constantly been developing materials. Um, I know that this is all audio, but I have right here in my hand, a part that is very, very similar to nylon in a in a resin. And it's just very durable. I can throw this on the ground and it's not gonna break. And that's what people want. They don't care about how it was made. They care about the product meets their needs. And traditionally in the 3D world, people are like, well, you can charge more for it because it's 3D printed. Well, that's like, you know, we have, we have 3D printed pens as well. And just because a pen, a stupid item, like a pen is 3D printed. It doesn't mean someone's going to charge that. Someone's going to pay more for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you have to, as we compete in the manufacturing world, we really have to find how it benefits the customer. And in our world, the customer is the manufacturer. How is that manufacturer going to bypass overseas suppliers? How are they going to be very agile? just in time shipping, how are we going to really change the future? And one of the quotes I love by Abraham Lincoln is he said, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And that's in essence, how we view it because Mm -hmm. just like Steve jobs at the apple, he said, or Henry Ford, I should say, they said, how do you, how do you want to see transportation improve? And people would have said, I want a faster horse. And that's not how he created it. He created a, a a mechanism that was totally different than what had already been out
0: there. Mm. Sorry, I've done. I've recorded two podcasts this week, and you both quoted the same Henry Ford quote, <laughs> which is the, the horse going faster. Um, you mentioned obviously you've been using three D printing them for more than fifteen years. What going back to you know the Dustless Technologies um, company and the use cases there? What what were you using the technology for at so was that more prototyping and and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was all prototyping. We had a, a I think it was Stratasys six two six or Dimension six two six machine, and right. it was a second hand machine that we bought from a university. And as soon as we got it, we we're like, oh, "This is the coolest thing ever! No more gluing ABS pieces together, and no more of this." And it was, you put the print in at night, you come back in the morning, and you know, it's it's the beauty of three D printing. It is what it is. Mm. So, um, but it was all, all prototyping.
0: Right. Okay. It's worth noting as well that as, as you know, as Merit 3D came to be, it was, it was 2020 obviously year of the the pandemic. Um, so I guess I've got two questions. First is how challenging was that? But the second is what did you take anything away from the use of 3D printing throughout that year for all of those healthcare applications and, and COVID safety applications in terms of, I guess, the, the the agility that you 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 referenced before but the the volumes that people were able to manufacture up with 3d printing
1: yeah the that was a that was a big big challenge because we would take we had one file and it was a, a very common file that we used to send out to companies and we're like create okay this part we sell 2000 of these to home depot per order give me the cost on the tell me how fast you can make it and tell me the cost on the part it's a 50 cent part in china and this is what i'm competing room, and they would give me quotes and most of the quotes were like okay two thousand parts it's going to take us three months to build it i'm like that's not acceptable and your part's going to be fifteen dollars like it's 50 cents in china what's going to push not only me but other manufacturers to want to do this and they're like well it's 3d printed so you can charge more for it i'm like the customer doesn't care
0: mm-hmm.
1: they don't care how it's made and so it was a really, really big challenge. And I think in the added manufacturing world, that's a mindset that we have to get over because people don't care how it's made. They care that it functions and meets their needs. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, the, on the material side, you know, thermoplastics, we're, we consider ourselves competing with ABS and polypropylenes, which are polycarbonates as well, which are, you know, one to two to... Three dollars a pound per material. When in the three D world, you get a roll of filament, which is twenty to thirty dollars a kg, or you get a a, a liter or kg of resin, which is fifty to hundred to two hundred and fifty dollars a kg. And it's like this isn't competing in manufacturing. How are we going to change the world? Because we have to be innovative in this area, and and so we end up going with uh, resin materials. Um, because of the scalability that we could do with these parts. Mm -hmm. And so it was funny because last year we got an order from a company for some binocular tethers and they ordered 5,000. We printed them. They ordered 25,000. We printed them. They ordered 60,000 of these binocular tethers. And I went to the team and said, how quick can we print this? And they said, we can do it in about a couple of weeks. We think I said, no, how quick can we print this? And they said, well, let us, let us figure this out. We'll come back. So they came back and they're like, if the stars align, we can print this in a day. I'm like, okay. that's it. Like that is our goal. And it's not because they're like, well, we don't need to. And it's like, it's not that we don't need to, it's that we have to prove to the world that this technology is changing, that we can do it. Mm. And and so we hit print at eight o'clock in the morning and we delivered 60,000 monocular tethers at four thirty that afternoon to the customer. and
0: what were the stars that had to align there for that to be a reality
1: um we had to have the right material we had to have the machines you're trying to process that amount that volume through these printers has never been done before and so on the back side there was a lot of a lot of manual labor throwing people at it to to pick these parts and to process do the post-processing them As parts that we do with resin it takes you have to clean the parts through the resin then you have to cure the parts and you have to it's it's not just like an FDM part that you just pull off the off the bed there's a there's a process behind it and then you have great you have cleaning solvents and you have you know how do you cure fully cure 60,000 parts in one day and so it was just a lot of manual labor and we yeah. threw a lot of people at it threw a lot of people at it but we did it
0: so, so in terms of the, the manual labour there, especially I guess at the the pros, process and phases, um, you know, you achieved sixty thousand parts in a day for one day. What would it take to make make that a reality seven days a week? Like in terms of the because it, I'm I'm assuming you probably couldn't do that with manual labor um, because of costs and that kind of thing. So do you need some automation? What are the challenges there to to kind of take that onto the next level?
1: Um, that, the point that we did, it was just to say they could be done, but absolutely. Uh, we've, we've invested in robots. We're continually looking at automation because that is additive manufacturing and robots and automation are like the perfect marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we have, that is the future. There's a lot AM flow and some other, you know, form labs is doing some automation things as well, Mm -hmm. but that's if a human can do it just touching a part and doing the same repetitive process over and over again then absolutely a machine can do it
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is what's going to lower the cost to bring that that 50 cent part that was quoted at $15 that's going to help to bring that cost down to 50 cents which will then bring on the reshoring projects which will then shorten supply chains and shorten the you know the demand on other countries for parts
0: mm-hmm. Because that's, um, I gather from reading um, on the company's website, that's, I guess the mission of the company is to enable that reshoring of manufacturing. And obviously, you've, you've mentioned an element of it there. But what I wanted to know was how you how you go about reshoring manufacturing and making it feasible from you know a cost perspective, a capacity perspective, a capability perspective, because there are reasons why um, products are manufactured overseas. And we've touched on on some of them already in this conversation. So how do you you as a company go about addressing um, those reasons to make it more practical to manufacture in the U.S.
1: So the biggest reason people go to uh, overseas, you know, China is the number one supplier of U.S. goods. Uh, obviously, there's other countries that are involved, but the number one reason is for cost. Mm-hmm. And we hear it day and day and day again, every, multiple times every day. Here's a, here's a quote to your part: They're like that's great, but I can get it for half the price in China. Mike, we know you can. That is, and even talking to to Ford, if you look at um if you look at some of the stuff that Ford's done, they said the quality is there on added manufacturing. It's the scalability and the costs that have to come down. Mm. And so how do how do we how do we drive those factors? Labor is a big factor in cost and material cost. And so those two are the two biggest factors in the part. And so labor obviously is. Going to be reduced by automation and material prices are going to be reduced as more people jump in economies of scale uh, start to kick into uh, kick into effect as new materials are developed revolving around the cost of a part and so a lot of in the resins what we do a lot there's a lot of resins in the automotive industry a lot of uv curable inks that, in the printing industry and so the the materials are out there It's just that no one has bought. I mean, we buy material by the ton. Most people are buying it by the kg. We buy it by the ton. Right. And I don't know of anyone else that does buy it by the ton. And so as more people jump into it and that economy of scale kicks in, then that price will jump down as long as, as well as the R&D for researching new materials and new costs.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I I wanted to touch on was um, obviously having the, you know the print farm that you have and having the printers is, is one thing but um building the expertise within your company so that your 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 colleagues and your your staff know how to use it and know how to you know use it to the the best of its ability can you talk to me about generating that uh knowledge within the, within the business over the years and also i guess sharing that knowledge within the business and how much of a of a challenge that has been obviously you've been going at it for years but how, how much of a challenge has that been and, and at this point how much of a i guess advantage is that for a company like yours to say that you know you you guys not only have the technology and not only able to achieve these scales but also you have the expertise that kind of can take that on and you know move forward as well
1: no that's a that's a great question because people because Yes, you can say, I'm going to spend $5 million and I'm going to invest in these printers. That's great. Now you just invest in a bigger problem. You don't have the infrastructure in place. And so we've developed systems in our backend and programs to help us um, stream, not streamline, but help us process correctly parts. Uh, we've looked at many of the automation softwares that will help you put a part through and do quality checks and, you know, the whole process flow. But... From what we saw, they lacked the ability to mass produce parts. And so we've had to develop our own systems because one of the cool things about additive is you can can improve your design whenever you want. But one of the biggest pains is you can improve your design whenever you want. So you have quality within revisions and you have revision after revision. And how do you make sure that that revision is the last revision? Because customers are like, do it again what you did last time. Well, what did I do last time? Because I got 15 different parts. And so just making sure that those processes are followed. And then even on the design side, customers, big customers that do manufacturing don't know how to design for additive manufacturing. They know how to design for stampings and injection molding and castings, but designing for additive is a whole new arena that people are getting into. So having to train people That Yes, the materials are there, but we need to have the right design because this is designed for injection molding. If I print it right now, it's going to look like crap, but -hmm. I can design that differently and make it look just stunning. Um, We're doing some parts in the automotive industry that you look at them and you're like, you have no clue that this would be injection molded or no clue that it would be 3D printed. Mm -hmm. And it just looks beautiful. And And that's what gets me excited about doing this because we're, we're, we're changing an economy in a world and we're doing it in where we are is in Southern Utah, where it's just historically had a lot of coal mines and coal plants and that war on coal has, has affected our community of 20 to 30,000 people very harshly in the last couple of decades. And so being able to, our goal is to be able to convert this economy from a coal economy to a CAD, a tech manufacturing, advanced manufacturing economy. And so that's, it's, we love it. We love the goal. We love the vision. We know that it has potential, and that we can make a difference in many people's lives around here.
0: I wanted to to come onto the the phone case application because, um, and I guess a, a you know a dustless application as well because on the on the merit three D website, um, May twenty twenty one seems like a bit of a milestone month for the for the company. Obviously, the the three D printed phone case products onto retail shelves just, you know, months essentially after the company was set up. Um, but interestingly on that application, you, you get the phone cases onto the shelves, but not before you, you'd been told that you couldn't actually do it. Um, so can you explain the, I guess, the work you did there to ensure that you were able to additively manufacture a high quality product? Um, after that, I guess that, that doubt that had been placed on on you guys and the capabilities of the technology to do it. So talk to us about that application and the work you guys did there.
1: So there's a book out there from Grant Cardone. Uh, He's a big sales guy. And one of the things that he says, he has quite a few books, but one of them is he's like, commit now and figure it out later. And so as a small company, you can do that. As a larger company, it's going to be a lot harder, right? Mm -hmm. But we we said yes and and many companies they kind of dip their toe into it and they want to test it to make sure it's right for them and the materials are going to work which is is great there's not a company well up until a couple months ago that really says yes i want a million pieces and so that's kind of what we did we said and i remember our first order we got an order for a thousand phone cases and we we started printing them. 30 days later, we finally delivered 1,000 phone cases. And we were like, wow, that was brutal. That <laughs> was brutal. Like, we got to get better. And so exponentially, our production capability has gone up. Exponentially, our quality has been able to go up. And the lead time to deliver parts has gone down exponentially. And so we just see these, these curves of exponentials crossing each other. And now, you know, what took us... 30 days to produce a thousand phone cases now takes, you know, we can do 10,000 phone cases in a day. Okay. And so it's just, it's exponentially just changing. And as technology okay. improves, and as we learn our process, we can see that that's just going to be continually improving.
0: Mm. And in the same month, you've also, uh, had the the success of the, the dustless 3d printed parts. So can you tell us about the application and I guess the, um the suitability of 3d printing to tackle those applications
1: yeah so the dustless 3d printing part and that was kind of the same as a hey, no one's ever done this before i think it took us like six months to release a part for the 3d printing part for dustless and it was a jackhammer shroud mm-hmm. and but because we were learning the process we said we know this is going to take longer we know it's going to be a kind of a brutal process and it was but we are really blazing a trail for future developments. And so it took longer. I, I think it even took closer to a year to release this part. You're right. And, but we did it. And now it only takes two weeks to three weeks up, sometimes up to a month release a part. Mm. And so with dustless, we're actually in the next couple of months releasing a vacuum that has 10 3d printed parts on it. Zero new injection molds. Um, we have one big, Thermal form mold that's going to be on there. But as far as like the molding cost is very minimal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the components on it are going to be 3D printed. Our goal is to 3D print a vacuum completely, like zero. And we're getting there. Mm -hmm. And, but it's, and, and we're learning because we will 3D print parts and it'll break. We're like, hey, how do we fix this? Oh, we have another material that we can use. Okay, let's use it. And then it just works and so as long as companies including dustless you know which they're both owned by by us but as long as companies can be agile and say okay let's test something different we know that there's there's capability in design or materials or whatever it is and they're willing to go down that road of hey will this work and and just be patient it will work it will work eventually
0: is having Dustless there on, uh, you know, as a you know, a sister company, um, a real help in terms of pushing the boundaries? Because obviously, you, you're running a company, so you need to make sure that it economically makes sense. You can't just do it for the sake of it. But you can you can say yes as the user and also as the manufacturer to say I want to try this and see how far we get. Whereas it's different, I guess, with other customer relationships, where they might be a little bit more hesitant you have the power I, I guess to say we're going to try this and see if it works and if not we'll learn from it and and go about it a different way use a different material
1: Oh, no, you're you're absolutely right even even though dustless they're actually two separate buildings right next to each other right. and even though they're so close it's still it's still hard to convince not to convince it's still hard to put in practicality the use of 3d printing for dustless stuff mm-hmm. until it becomes an issue like i'll have a I'll have a, a, a purchaser come and say, hey, I can't get this part for six months because it's made in China. Can you 3D print it? Yes, absolutely. And then it becomes a 3D printed part from then on. But right. it took it took that hiccup in supply chain to be able to convert even our sister company of Dustless to 3D print this part. Right. And so it's, it's not an easy task, but with Dustless, we have metal parts and we have plastic parts and we have big parts. And the goal... Really is all encompassing for huge injection molds or thermal forms or even metal parts. How do we get these parts cost effectively? And so, so four areas that merit has are large parts for additive manufacturing, small plastic parts for additive, carbon fiber parts, and metal parts. Right. So those are the four areas that we want to tackle. You know, kind of instigated by the need of dustless, but it's really the the world
0: needs that you you mentioned earlier um about that you know there's not many companies out there willing to say yes to additively manufacturing a million parts um and i have a i have a couple of questions on this project but i'm my first is going to be how do you know you're ready to say yes to one million parts
1: <laughs> uh it's it's because the technology is so new crazy enough what pushes a lot of people is desperation because their supply chain broke Mm -hmm. because we are so dependent on china for these parts that as soon as there becomes an issue of supply chain then they have no other option if they want to sell product which is sad but um so the order that we just got for a million pieces uh, there's some new materials out there that we're trying, and they are stinking amazing. They yeah. are awesome for some of these applications, but they've only been around for, you know, months. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of organizations, especially big organizations, don't want to take that risk and until, until the market has been tried and tested to say, yes, this part will last the test of time. If it's automotive, is that a 10 15 year life cycle it has to be in the sun like that hasn't been tested
0: mm.
1: and so it's going to take you know a lot of research and development to say yes this material does pass the same qualifications that polypropylenes AVSs, nylons polycarbonates all the materials that have been tried and tested have been through over the test of time
0: mm-hmm. um, on on the on this a one million part order. Can you explain what the what the application is for? So, what's the the function of it, and I guess why why is it suitable for for three D printing technology?
1: Uh, so adhesive technologies. They approached us and they said, uh, and this is one of those desperation things. They said, "Hey, our supply chain is having issues, and we need these parts." Mm. Um, it was a part that goes on the on the top of an epoxy tube that you if you go into Home Depot or Lowe's and you go into the concrete area you have these tubes of epoxy that you use to fill cracks in concrete. And with these epoxy tubes, they're they come with mixing nozzles so that you can mix the A and the B material together. And there's this little hanger that connects to the top of the tube and connects the mixing nozzle together. And and so we we took the first design and within you know a week we had a, a first design uh and we we gave it to them and it broke and they're like oh this doesn't work for our application mm-hmm. and which is we hear every single day we hear it it broke it doesn't work for our application and or it's expensive it doesn't work for our application and so we we said wait wait wait, wait. Just give us another chance, Like, give tell us some of your more in-depth design parameters, like what do you need this thing to do? How do you test it? And they said, well, our users take it and they throw it on the conveyor belt. I'm like, well, how are we gonna test that? And so we, we designed some parts, we took them and we threw them across the table back and forth and back and forth and they broke. And so we designed it differently. We used different materials and we threw it across it. And finally we got a design that we couldn't break. It was beautiful but it took that that moment of hey just give us a chance like let's let's figure this out and we will figure out the application and so so we pulled the trigger and the beauty of it is this is this is so cool because they had this part and i'm showing it on the screen but they had this part that was a square tube Mm. and they said well, if we can make it adapt to this little nozzle and this big nozzle, we could increase production by one third. And so now you're talking, oh, so now it's not just a, a 600,000 piece part, it's a million piece part. And they're like, yeah, at least. And so instantly, you know, we came up with a design, we made it universal to adapt for both nozzles and, and it actually eliminated a bunch of their SKUs because they had to have two SKUs before which now is just one SKU. And then the future game plan for them is hey, you know what's what's important? Cost is is important for most companies out there. They want to reduce their cost. And so coming up with a game plan to say great, let's let's come up with new designs that eliminate material usage, let's come up with ways that will eliminate uh labor usage or labor you know spent on a part will help reduce cost as well. And so at 30,000 pieces we came up with another design at 100,000 pieces it was another design when we hit 500,000 pieces we're going to be releasing another design mm-hmm. which can't be done with injection molding to continually improve that part unless you want to spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on molds
0: okay um so i have a few questions i'm trying to figure out which to ask first but let's go with what's just, just what start
1: is, with the first one samuel just start with the first one
0: what's the material what is the material that you're using for the for these parts
1: what's the material you said yeah um we have a couple different materials that have been approved one is a material by basf okay uh, it's called 1006 it's a very durable a material very similar to polypropylenes um we have a couple other materials that are in development and have been approved as well So that if uh, the material availability becomes an issue that we have resources to back uh, to fall back on there. And then there's another material in development that I'm very excited about that is stronger than polypropylene. Like it is just amazing material. And so a lot on the table, a lot in the works. And that's, that's what we really look for in suppliers is to be able to have this vision of, how do we increase the quality of materials and how do we reduce the costs? Because thermal plastics are out there. I've said it before, thermal plastics are out there and that's who we're competing against.
0: Yeah. And in terms of the the I guess the continuously improving design element, um how how do you you guys work with the, you know, the customer to to implement those designs? How do you know? Um, firstly, what to improve and then how, who takes care of that design process to, to ensure that you can, you know, make that improvement when you print the next load of parts.
1: Um, obviously knowing the customer's expectations and desires is key. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's quality of a part. Sometimes it's surface finish. Sometimes it's cost knowing that what is important to the customer is key on our minds. Because in the end, if they're happy, we're happy. Um, who does those changes? Many times it's the customers. Right. In the case of the this million pieces, it's us. We have internal designers that will take that project and say, great, what do we need to do? Is Do we need a better surface finish? Do we need a better cost? And let's figure out how to reduce material and reduce. I mean, we've. That's that's one of the biggest challenges in additive is people don't understand how to design for additive. And then when you do understand how to design, you always want to improve your design, which is you're able to do it, but it becomes an issue sometimes. And so having having the knowledge as we deal with these every single day, mass production customers and saying, hey, I need 100,000 of these. I need 10,000. I need 1,000 of these parts. And so... How critical is that customer with price and quality? And will just depend on what materials we use and what design we use. And
0: And how drastic are the design changes? Are they are they really subtle or are they noticeable just you know from afar?
1: Um, I would say most of them are pretty subtle. Right. Uh most of them are very, very small. We're working on a couple micro applications right now that I saw a part this morning of it's a spring. It's a part with a spring in it. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it would work. And the designer came back. He's like, I have this idea. I want to do it. He implemented it. It actually works amazing. Like it is a, it's just an amazing application. And I'm hoping we can share some of that, Mm -hmm. but it's design and test, improve and test again and test and test and test again. But if you're designing for, 100,000 pieces or a million pieces, you're going to design it a little differently and you're going to try to slim out every bit of labor and material that you can in there mm. if the cost is important to a customer. So cool. If if you're designing for a thousand pieces, then you know, you're not going to spend that much time putting into it or 10,000 pieces, but all depends on the customer's needs and what's important to them.
0: I have a, a couple of questions, a couple more questions on the on the 1 million part order before we finish them. The first is when when we shared the, the news on, on our channels and on our LinkedIn, there was some discussion around, I think just from the image that was used, which was a box full of those those parts, and there was um, people asking, why wouldn't you just injection mold that? And obviously, the continuous improvement of the design is, is obviously one, that's it. In terms of, I guess, the, the cost per unit, um, I, I think in, in that thread of conversation, you mentioned that, you know, you guys are working on, on bringing that down as you, as you move forward. So talk to me about, I guess, the consideration between 3d printing these parts and, and injection molding them from an, from an economics point of view.
1: Um, <clears throat>
0: yeah. So like I said, the cost of materials
1: is still much higher than yeah. your plastics. And so that becomes, that becomes an issue. um, But the economics for it, it, a lot of it is hard to measure Mm -hmm. because now, as soon as with this part, that's so simply stupid, you can design, like you can just find little teeny subtle improvements, just like, just like I mentioned when, oh, we can change this from a, we can make this adaptable to a big nozzle and a small nozzle. Mm -hmm. Oh, what else can we use this for? And so having the customer's mindset to say, I can make this and I can always improve it. And having that customer back additive is key because people do say that from coming from a molding background, I know that every single time we cut still on a mold and a customer said, can you improve this? We answered no. Even if the customer's, like I said, if the customer's idea was great and he was correct, or they were correct, we wouldn't improve it. Mm. And so, having that mindset that I can always improve this, because that part, once you, that's just a the million piece is just a hanger. But now you look after the hanger and you look before the hanger. Oh, how can we improve the epoxy tube? How can we make this all one piece? Mm. How do we make you know the the mixing nozzle integrated with this hanger? So it's instead of having three pieces, now you have two pieces and. It's hard to say to be happy with the result as far as you hear that engineering mindset that an engineer always wants to improve and always wants to improve and when is good enough. And I think good enough should happen, but you should always still have that continuous continuous improvement mindset that yes, good enough is good. We're going to leave it for six months and then we'll address it again. If there's, let's get other feedback and let's keep improving it.
0: And as I understand it, and I, I assume production of these parts is, is ongoing at this point. Um, it was uh, you're delivering or you're manufacturing them at a, a rate of around forty thousand units a week. So, what are you? What have you guys learned so far from from the project and printing at those rates and in, improving on the design? And with that, you know the target that um, I can't quite do the math, but I guess within around six months or so, you, you have to have hit a million. What, what have you guys taken away from, from this um, this workload and this project so far?
1: Um, we've learned quite a few things. Obviously, it's, it's probably the biggest order in the world as far as numbers go. Uh, we've learned a lot of what we want to improve on the backside for post-processing. Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot of how we can automate things. Uh, we've learned a lot of quality control. Uh, we have metrics in place that we can measure quality failures every single day for every single print, whether it's machine or material or whatever that is. How do we measure those quality and improve our um, our quality for for parts? And I would say on these parts, we're probably about ninety-eight percent right now, um, just because it's a part that we're continually printing and we're continually improving. We still fell with some of these parts Mm -hmm. but but as we track that then that will be a a metric that is just always improving um we've learned that there is a lot of pushback like you said with well just injection molding Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or a lot of people that think that injection molding is faster uh there was a post last night that said you're never gonna compete with injection molding and I started thinking of the numbers on that binocular tether that we printed 60,000 in a day. And we were kicking out 2.4 binocular tethers every second. And so if you were to injection mold that and it was a 60 second cycle time, you would need 144 cavity mold to keep up with what we were doing in 3D printing. And so just educating the market, we've learned that it's very people are used to what they're used to and, and have It's hard to change habit. Mm. Um, I would say the biggest thing is on the, how do we process parts, making sure that we're printing the right revision, making sure that we're printing the right material, making sure that we have pr- part tra- traceability and a lot of the post process stuff. How do we process 40,000 parts a week, which is usually coming to 13 to 20,000 parts per day. Mm.
0: And I suppose the challenging thing for the industry as a whole is it's, it's difficult to get those learnings until you start manufacturing at these volumes. It's kind of like a chicken and egg thing of everyone's trying to push the the technology to manufacture these big volumes, but until you get the order, you can't understand what works and what doesn't really to then make the improvements to make it possible going forward. So it's,
1: you're, you're absolutely correct. And that is changing all the time. And we, is we meet with different automation companies, they're like, okay, what do you want to automate? Well, we want to automate this and this and this, but we're going to change it in six months. Mm-hmm. Like, well, why are you going to change in six months? Because technology is improving. And they're like, well, you can't spend a million dollars on this automation project if you're just going to change it in six months. And so it's, it's been a mindset even on the automation side, because
0: mm-hmm.
1: they want a process that's stable, that they can yeah. come in and improve and say, we're going from X to Y or X to Z through Y, but in six months, we're cutting out Y. Mm. Like, well, and so it's, it's been an education for them as well and us to say, okay, how do we work with this where it's, it's not always stable? Like, it, it always has to be agile in some way.
0: Um, my last question before we, we finish, and, and thanks for your time, Spencer. Um, you referenced it earlier. Um, but obviously, you know Merit 3D and, and Dustless Technologies. Um, their hometown is, is Carbon County in Utah, which is you know renowned for its its coal production. Um, but as it as it states on your website, the plants are set to close down in the next fifteen or so years, and and with that, I think around seventeen hundred jobs, are, are, you know, will 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 go. Um, mm-hmm. And part of your vision now is to kind of do as much as you can to replace those jobs. So can you tell us? a bit about the the plans there and the vision there um in terms of the company's growth moving forward but also i guess establishing its presence in that in that local community and and protecting jobs
1: yeah so as we started merit we said well what do we what do we want to accomplish like why are we doing this yes we're doing that in manufacturing we want to replace injection molding but what's what's the why what's the bigger goal and so we we started thinking and uh I, yeah being in a coal industry you know i have i have employees who have husbands that work in the coal mines and the plants and their jobs are one of them their job's going to be up this year for closing a plant one of the three plants is closing this year All Right. and so like that affects me pretty hard because because my dad worked in the plant as a plant is a is uh, a a diesel mechanic and you have these people that make really good wages and either in the coal mines or the plants and as, as their jobs go away or transition, how do I keep their standard of, standard of living the same as what they are today? And so we went to the uh, the workforce development group here and and we said, okay, how many jobs are directly gonna be affected by these closures? And so they, they said between the trucking industry and the coal plants and the coal mines, you're gonna be losing over about 1700 jobs. And so, as a team, we said, "Okay, that's our goal. Like, we need to be able to replenish these 1,700 direct jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, you have indirect jobs as fabricators and painters and other other jobs that are indirectly affected. But these 1,700 direct jobs are going to be. So that was our goal. Like, we said, let's do it. And we have, we have the 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 backing of the state of Utah. They love what we're doing." the manufacturing industry, you know, we're blazing a path there because Utah has, has one of the best economies in the country, but yet this area where I live in the area South are two of the counties that actually had population of a net loss the last few years because the war on coal has been You know, coal mines closed and what we used to have seven mines just in our county. We have zero right now. There's zero coal that's mined in the county. And it's there's just a history, a history here that we want to we want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. We want to change people's lives and and do it in a rural economy. And everyone people say you can do this easier if you come to a bigger city where you have more resources. And I'm like, this is this is where I was born, this is where I was raised, and the people here, in my opinion, are much better than other people. No, <laughs> no. I just, I say that lightly, but no, they're, they're, the people here are just amazing. We we love living in rural, but we we do want to see it improve. We don't want to see it grow. at leaps and bounds like some of the other areas, but we want to see it just, we want to see it being an amazing place to, to 3D print your parts.